Hey. Well, I'm glad you uh, made it here with me this evening. Open your Bibles up, if you would, to John chapter 4. And would like to share with you out of uh, chapter 4. What do you think of superheroes? Um, we, uh, we oftentimes think that superheroes is kind of like a uh, children's thing. It's not. We all have like superhero type of stuff. And um, there's a movie that I like. Well, they the, all, all the movies that come out, uh, really, especially action movies, center around this superhero type of person. Whether it be uh, Gladiator was a movie that was out, you know, Russell Crowe is this, is this uh, uh, you know, Maximus fella who is just, uh, he is the epitome of, you know, male, maleness, guys like him. And then they have uh, all these different movies. One of the ones I like is Lord of the Rings, and you have these four heroes, and they got video games now. Really into heroes. Now, when you come down to Christianity, we, we, I guess we would call Jesus our hero, probably, obviously. Uh, Jesus is our hero. But you understand, now, I want you to hear me on this. Jesus is not the hero, uh, he's not the superhero that most of, um, most of the heroes, superheroes of our day and age are. You really can't, uh, and it's truth, you really can't categorize him in the same category as the other guys. Uh, for instance, you look at, uh, have you seen Lord of the Rings? Or like The Matrix or something, you know, some newer movie, you got this guy that's just, you know, above standard. He's just awesome. Well, Lord of the Rings, it's actually J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it. He's a friend of C.S. Lewis, was a Christian guy, and uh, it's a good movie. Uh, but you have this fellow by the name of uh, Aragorn in it, and he is uh, this, he's the... Uh, he is uh, going to be the king someday. Time we get to the third book, the third movie, he's going to be king. And he is, he's fearless. He, he's, he's tough. He, he never gets tired. Uh, he's, always, uh, uh, he's always on top. He always wins. He never gets hurt. You know? And he's fearless in his, in his attack. In his, in his, uh, the guy never gets wore down. I mean, he's just he's a stud, man. You know? and of course, guys walk out of there going, yeah, <laughs> I can relate to that guy. But you understand, that, that, that's, that's one understanding of a superhero. But when you come to Jesus, he's, uh, he, he's not like that. We, uh, we like to think of Jesus like that. We like to think of Jesus never being tired, uh, never getting, uh, you guys with me? Never getting wore out. Never getting, um, never being defeated, never being maybe uh, spiritually oppressed. You know, he, he is on top of his game all the time. But folks, you understand that in, from John's, especially from John's perspective, but from the perspective of the Word in general, but from John's perspective, Jesus, He's not all of that. Jesus gets tired. Jesus gets wore down. He gets frustrated. He practically loses His temper in the temple scene. John pictures Jesus as weeping. You ever looked at Jesus like that before? This is the picture of Jesus that we get in this passage. Let me read this. This is our section for tonight. And it's really just the introduction of John chapter 4. And he puts something in here. If you can, if you can hang with me this evening, if you can stick with me. He's, he, he begins chapter 4, which is a whole new section, uh, different scene, entirely different scene in this book. 
But he begins chapter 4 with a little introduction that he's trying to give us some insight to this Jesus. And he does this periodically throughout his book. But it really is wonderful here in John chapter 4. And I want to share it with you. And it's verses 1 through 6 of John chapter 4. This is how it reads. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Father, we love you this evening. Uh, Holy Spirit, we need your help tonight. Uh, I can't convey the depth of truth that's in this passage. It's so aggressive. It is so threatening, possibly, to the way we've always viewed uh, Jesus. Would you uh, take the truth of this word and, and move it beyond all distractions? Would you capture our attention tonight? And would you teach us the depth of the truth of this, of this passage and, and the insight that it gives us to Jesus? We love you this evening. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, who is just like us, Jesus Christ. Amen. This passage gives us a picture of Jesus that uh, is a little bit threatening to my, uh, I guess, my understanding of Jesus as this superhero fellow. Uh, he's tired. Uh, one of Jesus' favorite designations in the Gospel of John is the term Son of Man. If you would happen to look with me back in chapter 1, you're going to understand that John refers to Jesus a number of different ways throughout his Gospel. Uh, in every Gospel, you have these different titles that are given to, uh, to, uh, to, to Jesus. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he is the kingly Messiah. Uh, to Paul, he is this crucified one. Uh, and, and of course, you have these going throughout the, the New Testament, these pictures of this uh, of this of, of Jesus, and, and even in the Old Testament, you have these different titles that are given. In the book of Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. Are you with me? He's the suffering servant. Now, when you come into John's gospel, he just doesn't give him one title. He just doesn't give him one name to express who he is. He refers to him in the first chapter alone. And you can run through these when you get home tonight. But in the first chapter alone, he refers to Jesus in sixteen different ways. He refers to Jesus in sixteen different ways. Um, John calls him the Word. And he refers to him in terms of the word uh, that was used in creation, the word of God. He's the word that became flesh. He's the one and only son of God. He's the true light. Uh, he refers to him as the Messiah, uh, which is the Hebrew translation of the Greek term Christ. He refers to him both as those. Um, he refers to him as the Lamb of God. All these different titles. Two of my favorite happen to be in verses uh, 45 and 46. Um, Philip comes to one of his buddies by the name of Nathaniel. And he's trying to convey who it is that he's bumped into. And he just doesn't come up to Nathaniel. Now get this. He just doesn't come up to Nathaniel and say, Hey, I found this guy and uh, he's from Nazareth. His name's Jesus. He's, he's the one. He's the Messiah. He doesn't say that. This is how he talks about Jesus. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. So in other words, he comes to Nathaniel and he's wanting to express who he has found. So he gives two titles 
to give you insight into the light of life of Jesus. And he comes up to uh, comes up to Nathaniel and he says, "You know who we found? This is who we found. You know the one that Moses talked about in the law? That's the guy. We found that guy. Oh, and the prophets they also talked about him. The ones that the prophets talked about. That's the guy that we found. So those are insights into his life. Does it make sense? Well, so you have all these different titles that John uses to refer to Jesus, but Jesus himself." He doesn't refer to himself in all these different ways. He pretty much has one way he refers to himself. He refers to himself in this gospel this way 13 times. Doesn't refer to himself as the Lamb of God. Doesn't refer to himself as the Christ or the Messiah, anything like that. The way he refers to himself is as the Son of Man. He's constantly saying, hey, the Son of Man, I, the Son of Man this, and the Son of Man that. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, son of man means, he's talking about man in terms of mankind. Uh, you, I can hear him running around and, and all sorts of things. We see him every day and you're holding one as a product of man, a son of man. It's the product of a mankind, the type of, the type of person that you produce as a child. It's, it's a son of man, it's a son of mankind, or it's a, it's a daughter of mankind. This is how Jesus, folks, refers to himself. He refers to himself not as above us. Now, if you could get a hold of this. He refers to himself as not above us, as not, not better than us. He doesn't refer to us uh, himself as having one up on us. He refers to himself as a son of man. He looks at them and says, I'm just a son of man, man. That's just exactly the way that you are. But that kind of threatens... Uh, we, we believe that theologically. And we have these nice creeds that say that uh, He became like us in every way that we were sin accepted. We have all those kinds of things. But let me ask you something tonight. And we have a bunch of different generations represented here. Do we really believe that Jesus was the same that we are? Do we really believe that? Uh, we, we know from this passage that Jesus gets tired. Do you think he got uh, headaches? You think he got headaches? Think he got back aches? Probably. Uh, you, ever, you think he had athlete's feet? Did he get athlete's feet? I, I've got this. I've got this thing with me. Uh, I've got an. I've got nasal problems. It's hereditary allergies, and uh, I can breathe fine. But the moment I lay down, I just. And what happens is I'll roll on one side because only one side will get stopped up and it'll sink to that side. You ever get that? So you roll to the other side and about 20 minutes later it'll sink to that side. You ever get that? And you're rolling back and forth? I wonder if he had that. I wonder if he had all the, the human things that we go through. Now let me take that a step further and think about this. Do you think Jesus got maybe uh, emotionally tired? Do you ever get emotionally tired? Wives? You get so frustrated with that husband of yours? You ever get that way? You ever see the way little kids act in the supermarket and get emotionally frustrated, want to go over and spank them because their parents won't? And uh, you ever get emotionally tired? You think Jesus got that way? Do you ever wake up and just emotionally, not, not, not a spiritual thing, but emotionally you're kind of in a bad mood? Just woke up on, we call that woke up on the wrong side. Do you think Jesus got that way? Is he really human? Do you ever get spiritually frustrated? Come on, you can keep answering. Do you think Jesus got spiritually frustrated? See, I, I, 
I almost want to say, no. Well, no, he's Jesus. Well, I mean, he was tempted in every way we were, but I mean, he's, he wasn't spiritually frustrated. Spiritually frustrated, I mean, the, the word of God comes in his life and he's happy and joyous. Wow, ooh, wow. See, sometimes the will of God comes in my life and I'm, my life and I'm like, what are you, you kidding me? You think Jesus ever got spiritually troubled? Well, how do you explain the Garden of Eden? That sweating, blots, that sweating drops of blood stuff wasn't too precious then. You see, we look at a Jesus who gets all the things that we got. And what, what you're seeing, that this, is, this is great stuff. What you're seeing in this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 4, is you see this Jesus who is tired from the journey. And, and does he mean physically tired? Well, sure, yeah, hey, he's physically tired. The, the journey, uh, of course, they didn't have cars. And, of course, you know that Jesus more than likely didn't travel on a horse or a donkey. Don't have any records of like that. In fact, he has to find one in order to come into Jerusalem at the, at the last Passover before he's crucified. Uh, we understand that scene. So Jesus walked wherever he went. And if you would go back, and I did some study on this, and I'm not a historical, uh, you know, archaeological buff, you know, you might say. But if you do some of the studies on this, you'll know that the road from Judea uh, up through Samaria is a rough one. There's mountains. And of course he left probably early in the, in the afternoon time when, when the Pharisees come out to investigate him. Because it says there in the first few verses, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back to, uh, once more to Galilee. So he probably left as soon as he heard this. Probably left out as a long journey. So he left probably in the morning. And he's journeyed all day. And at the end of our passage in verse 6, it says it was about the sixth hour. Using the Roman standard of time, which is probably, since they were under Roman persecution, using Roman money, Roman government, they were probably using the Roman standard of time. About the sixth hour means it would have been about nine o'clock in the evening. So he had traveled all day long, uh, walked several miles. It's in the heat of the day. And he, he, can you say he's physically tired? Sure, he's physically tired. Has he had a rough week with preaching? Sure, he's been preaching out there, doing baptizing, all kinds of people coming out. He's just got off revival. I know how he feels. He's physically tired. But I want to I propose something to you folks. He's more, and this is significant, he's more than just physically tired. I believe with all my heart, according to the passage and the context of this section, that he's more than just physically tired. He's emotionally tired. He's, he, he's possibly spiritually frustrated. All of these things are going on in his life. Let me show you this. This is the week that Jesus had. You ever had these weeks? Oh, man. <laughs> I've been dying to tell you this story all day. I've had weeks that are just not good weeks. This last summer, I came off of this phenomenal training camp we have every summer in, in New Baltimore, Michigan. And it's just, I'm, I'm with friends and, and mentors and people that I just love to hear uh, share the word. It's just a great week. And I leave that week, I leave there on Sunday, and I've got to fly out the next morning. It's in, it's in Detroit, mind you. Actually, a little above Detroit. And I left Sunday afternoon, planning to drive down to Indianapolis park my fifth wheel there, jump on a plane at 5 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, and scoot off to Arizona, start preaching that evening. And I had three guys with me that were interns. Well, I'm driving the truck and the fifth wheel, and they're following me in a little Ford Escort. That's what they were going to follow me all summer. You know, I try to treat them as well as I can, give them a nice fancy car. And we're coming back from, from uh, Detroit, had this wonderful week, I'm ready to go, just beginning the summer, eight weeks of touring and sharing the gospel, really excited about it. And... Um, my, my guys come up beside me and, and I think they're waving so I wave back and they were like no, no, no no, pull over and so I pull over and, and they say well, it's overheating that Ford Escort it's overheating 
So I thought, oh man. Well, keeping my cheer on, I, we check it, and it has no antifreeze in the radiator. It's got a hole in one of the hoses. And we're on the way home in the middle of nowhere. And we're actually not in the middle of nowhere. We're in the middle of the, on the interstate. There's a, we're at a rest area. We're about 40 miles from Indianapolis. Been on the road for about five hours. And so uh, I tell him, we fill it up, and I say, just go ahead of me. Go to Indianapolis First Church. When you get there, shut it off and just wait for me. And so we pull back out, and uh, uh, they take off, and I go inside, use the bathroom, come back inside, get my, come back outside, get in my fifth wheel, and I take off. Well, I start going. I leave the rest area about a quarter of a mile down the road, and my gauges in my car just start flipping on and off. They're going all kinds of crazy. The lights are dimming. All kinds of stuff is happening. I'm thinking, what in the world? My, tr- my fifth wheel, truck pulling the fifth wheel dies. So I go over this hill and coast down the other side on the side of the road. My flashers won't work. It's dark out. It's like 11 o'clock at night. Uh, actually, at that time, it was only about 9 o'clock at night. But um, it, was, it was getting late. The, my, my flashers worked. So I'm sitting there on the side of the freeway. Luckily, I got off far enough, but they couldn't see me. So I pick up my phone, get ready to call the cell phone for my interns, and my phone rings. And I answer it, and they say, Jeremiah, the Ford Escort just died. We're about three miles up the road. Come by and pick us up. I said, oh, no. I said, I can't get my pick up. I'm broke down. And so... That evening, and I won't go into the full thing, but I had to have a tow truck come out and tow my, my escort to a church in Anderson, Indiana, which is on the way to Indianapolis, have my wife come from Indianapolis up, pick the guys up, take them home, and then I call my insurance company because the towing is free, but there's no tow trucks where I'm at, and she's really rude with me, and I'm frustrated, and I was there till 2 in the morning, 2 in the morning. Had this huge tow truck come out. You have to have a semi-tow truck to pull this thing. Pull it into this church. I get to the, I get to the house. And I began this week. I go to there. I, I get into town. And it's just, it seems like one problem with another. I call back to the Dodge dealership. That I had to have my truck towed to the Dodge dealership. It's $200, every, $200 every time you have to have that thing towed. And they're giving me problems. And I'm not there to argue with them. And they're just racking the bill up. And I'm thinking, oh. And it's been one of those weeks. You've had one of those weeks? You know what I'm talking about? This is the kind of week that Jesus has been having. Now look with me. Flick back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, the first 11 verses, Jesus is at this wedding at Cana. He comes there. Uh, It's uh, it's not that he just crashed this wedding party. It says in the first few verses that he was invited to this wedding. In fact, it says in verse 2, And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So he's invited to this wedding. He arrives there, and it's, it's a family thing. His mother's there. And, of course, you know how moms are. They're wonderful. She's nagging him. And uh, wanting him to take care of this wine issue. And uh, he's trying to get out of that deal. He gets stuck in the middle of it, and this awesome miracle takes place. Uh, he ends up leaving there, and he goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we understand the, what, what kind of time that he has there. He walks into the middle of this... Uh, hypocrisy, this, this uh, idolatry, walks into all this stuff. Uh, there, there's all this dishonesty going on. He, gra- he rushes across the temple floor. He grabs these cords, fashions those things into a whip. He chases everyone from the temple area. He's flipping tables over there. He's cracking a guy over there. He's, he's ushering the sheep out because he loves animals. And he, he, he's really addressing that whole crowd. And he's so frustrated. And then, of course, he's getting yelled at by the leaders of Israel in verses 18 through 22. And, and they're not listening to what he's talking about. And they're asking him what authority he has to do these things. And he's so frustrated because they're not seeing the idolatry. Of course, they're a part of the idolatry. So he's all frustrated. He leaves that scene. You come into chapter 3, and this is the, probably that evening or the next evening, and Nicodemus, who's this leader of Israel, folks, 
Nicodemus is the one. If anybody's going to understand Jesus, if anybody's going to get in on what he's talking about, Nicodemus is going to understand. He's going to get in. He, he's a good guy. He, he, he authentically loves God. But Jesus sits down in the first eight verses and he, he breaks it down. He lays open what he's talking about. He lays out the new covenant right before God, or right before uh, Nicodemus, that God's going to be doing in his, uh, that God's doing in, in, Jesus, in, in his midst in Jesus' life. And how does Nicodemus respond in verse 9? How can this be? And Nicodemus doesn't believe him. So he argues with him. He's trying to convince him all the way down to verse 21. He can't get it done. Nicodemus leaves. And then he goes out into the Judean countryside. Now, now get this. He's been in Jerusalem. The whole time he's been in Jerusalem, there's been opposition to his message. No, no one's believing him. No one's getting in on what he's talking about. They're not understanding. He, he's talking to the leaders of Israel. They're all self-righteous. They don't need what he's talking about. They're rejecting him. So he leaves. He goes out into the Judean countryside. And this is in verses 22 through 30. And out in the Ju actually 22 through 36. But in the Judean countryside, who does he meet out there? You with me? You still with me? Come on. Stay with me. Out in the Judean countryside, who does he run up against? John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is obviously in cohorts with Jesus. He understands. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. That actually Jesus and John the Baptist is, uh, is the expression of God's working in their midst. This is God's plan. This is what God is doing. <laughs> Jesus and John the Baptist are the expression of what God is doing. And so Jesus comes out there. He's in the midst of this ministry. And uh, you have John the Baptist's disciples. And as it says, look, look at this in verse uh, 20, 26. John the, John the Baptist's uh, disciples come up to him and say, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well... He is baptizing and everyone's going to him. So even the very, dis and they're all frustrated, you understand. And even the very disciples of John the Baptist are against Jesus. Are, are you following me on this? You all give me the same look. He, he, he has experienced opposition from the very beginning. He comes into Jerusalem. He cleanses that temple. Uh, no one seems to, uh, to get in on that. In fact, all he receives is opposition. He leaves the temple. He goes up to uh, his upper room area where he's celebrating the Passover. And, uh, of course, Nicodemus comes up. He doesn't understand. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't get in what's going on there. And then you, uh, you have him leaving, going to the Judean countryside to spend some time with his disciples and baptize. Of course, John the Baptist is over there and, and he's his own cousin. And, and of course, he's involved in what God is doing. And, and you think, hey, if anyone's going to get in on what Jesus is doing, it's going to be the disciples of John the Baptist. They have heard what John the Baptist have said. Even some of Jesus' own disciples have come from that group. John and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. And yet they're so frustrated because everyone's going to Jesus. Everyone's going over there. And, 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 and of course, John the Baptist has to, has to uh, adjust them. He has to bring them in line and say, hey, uh, he's the bridegroom. And the bride, which is God's people, is meant for him. And so you come down to John chapter 4. And the final blow is these Pharisees hear that Jesus is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And then John has to correct that because it says, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples and of course, there's this improper, this in, these rumors at all about him. 
uh, and you have these Pharisees who begin to spy on him. They don't trust him. And he's receiving all this oppression. Can you put yourself in his perspective? The, the, God is moving upon his people. It's been five, four or five hundred years since God's done anything. And, and, and they've been begging. They've been crying for this new covenant. Jesus finally comes and no one wants anything to do with it. And Jesus is excited. He goes into the temple. It's, it's the inauguration of his ministry. And God's beginning to do things. And, and the baptism of Jesus has already taken place. And he goes into the temple and no one accepts him. And, and he talks to the very leaders of Israel about what his ministry is all about, Nicodemus. And they don't get in on it. And even John the Baptist's own disciples, well, they don't even want him around. And he's so frustrated. He's so, he's so he can't believe it. And so what's his normal reaction to all that? I want to go home. I'm just going to go back to Galilee, familiar setting. It's kind of his home base. And he picks up, and you understand if you would look at a map, uh, Judea is here, Samaria is here, and Galilee is up north. So Samaria is in between Judea and Galilee. And normally how you would get to Galilee is they had different roads, especially for Jews who didn't want anything to do with Samaritans, that would go around Galilee. But Jesus goes straight through there. Why? He wants to get home. The fastest possible route he can possibly get. It's at the end of the evening, and you see him. Uh, they, they pull in by this town, Sychar. They haven't had anything to eat all day. It's been a rough journey. And Jesus wants to be by himself. Now, put all this together. He, doesn't, he wants to be by himself. He sends his disciples into town. Yeah, go buy some food. I'm just going to wait here. I want to be by myself. I just want to be alone. Which he does this all the time, you understand. He always wants to be alone uh, at times. So he, he stops at this well. He probably leans up against it. And he's tired. He's by himself. This is, uh, this is Jesus the superhero. Are, are you with me? This is, this is the Jesus that we serve. He's physically tired. He's emotionally tired. His ministry is going down the tubes. It's like he goes to a revival service and everybody in the service is doing this. Yeah, yeah. Hurry up. It's, that, that, that's the kind of way he feels. And he's so, he's so frustrated. He, he just sits there by the well. And if you would ever... See, if you'd ever think that Jesus would be vulnerable, this is the time. See, those are the times when I find myself, and it shouldn't be so. Now listen to me. It should not be so. But the times I find myself being most vulnerable to sin, and sin, again, is not necessarily like, you know, killing someone, but sin is acting out of the flesh. Sin is, is, is being the demonstration of myself versus the demonstration of God. The times that I most find myself like that is when I haven't had enough sleep, when I'm tired, when I haven't eaten, when I'm around my in-laws. I mean, uh, you know, uh, when I, you know, it's, it's those types of times when I, when I get really wore down. And you look at Jesus, he's at this well. Now get this, he's at this well, he's beat down, he's worn, he's vulnerable. And who do you see come strutting up to the well? A prostitute. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, oh, no, Jesus, get your game face on. Come on, get with it. If, if, and you're almost, and of course we know the end of the story, but see, at the very first outset, you're thinking, hey, if this guy's ever going to, if he's ever going to be weak, if he's ever going to, it's going to be at this point right here. And you see this prostitute come out to the well, and if you know the story, you find out that she's had five husbands, all this sorts of thing. And she enters into conversation with Jesus and you've got to put yourself in the context. I believe, in the name of Jesus, I believe that he was tempted in every way that we were tempted. She comes out. She, first of all, shouldn't be talking uh, with Jesus. He's a rabbi, and she's a woman. And rabbis didn't talk to women unless it was absolutely necessary. 
Uh, that just was kind of uncouth in their society. It wasn't acceptable. Uh, he was, of course, uh, a, a, a Jew, and she was a Samaritan. They really shouldn't be. And she even brings that up in the passage. How are, how are you, a Jew, going to ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? Uh, there's all kinds of evidences why he and she should not be talking. And yet he is. So she looks at him, or he looks at her and says, Hey, can I have a drink? And she looks at him and says, How in the world is it you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? In other words, she's probably thinking, What do you really want? Why are you talking to me out here all by yourself? Now, if you'd put this in our 21st century what do you think that and we put him at Jesus as a typical pastor talking to a woman like this questions begin to arise board members begin to ask questions and I wonder if she takes it this way and you, you see all of this all the possibilities now put yourself in this picture you see all the possibilities of Jesus falling flat on his face all the he's weak he's tired he's lonely he's been rejected his very own people have not accepted him. If he's ever going to fall, if he's ever going to fall flat on his face, it's going to be right now. And what do you see happening in this situation? God moves in the midst of this thing, and not only she falls in line with the truth of the gospel, but he goes into the Samaritan town of Sychar, and for two days, doesn't do any miracles, doesn't say there's any miracles here, doesn't do any miracles, but he speaks the truth of the word of God, and everyone believes, and at the end of this section, you find that the people in Samaria are saying, Samaria are saying hey, we, not, we don't believe just because of what this woman says, but we believe because we've heard it for ourselves with our own ears. And you come away from this scene going, wow, man, Jesus is a stud. You know, how, did, how did he do that? Well, it, it wasn't because he was a, a slick communicator. I mean, he, he was tired. He was, he was wore out. He was, he was emotionally frustrated. I mean, you, you don't even see a hint of temptation getting to him in this scene. I mean, how... How did, how did this all take place? But again, this whole passage has been talking about what? Has it been talking about Christianity as a product of uh, discipline? Do we, got any, uh, do we have any advice on when you're tired and, and, and the disciplines that you have learned you put into effect or, or maybe you just willpower? Is, is that what's going on in the life of Jesus? Or is it the resource that Jesus is living out of that no matter how empty... No matter how depleted Jesus is emotionally, physically, no matter how much spiritual turmoil is going through in his life, sin, listen to me on this, sin is never the product of us being tired. Sin is never the product of us being emotionally disturbed, exhausted. You see, sin is never the product of, see, we've used this. Honey, I'm really sorry about the way I snapped at you the other day. I was just tired. I'm sorry for yelling and screaming and acting ungodly towards you. I knew it was wrong, but I was just tired. See, that doesn't work in this situation. That doesn't work in this situation. Well, you know, hey, I'm sorry about this, that, and the other, and I'm sorry about yelling and screaming in the church, or, or not being, well, I just haven't eaten in two days. See, that doesn't work in this passage. That sounds fleshly. Wouldn't it be something, wouldn't it be something that if God had created such a way in our life, He had created such a life for us, that temptation, falling into temptation, would never be a result of a human physical condition, but it would be a result of straying from Him and not living out of the resource of God.
you see Jesus in the wilderness. Forty days. <laughs> That's a long time. No eating, no drinking. Forty days. And when does the enemy come? And you're thinking, oh dear. He's toast. He's going to fall down. He's toast. He's not a, probably not a morning person either. And look, he hasn't eaten for 40 days. The Lord Almighty, he's done. And you see him, three temptations. He's coming out clean. And you're saying, how? The resource of God. Which tells us that ministry, that ministry is not the product of us being on top of our game. And that's the language that we use. It's not the product of us being, see, you could be emotionally a wreck and still be used by God. You know what the hardest is for me? Uh, I'm human. I'm just like you are. One of the hardest things for me is when my wife and I scream and yell at each other and fight over the dumbest things. And then I have to walk to the church and go, Hi. And be this picture of this person who has his life all together. You ever do that? Come to church all the way, screaming and yelling at each other, and then get out of the church car, or get out of the car, walk into church, be smiling. Happy to be here. You ever do that? Be honest. We do that. Would it be helpful if I told you that maybe being in arguments about stuff is okay? Maybe about waking up in the morning and being emotionally kind of not right on because your boss at work is crawling down your throat or finances are pressuring you. You've got all these concerns in your life. Wouldn't it be something? Man, imagine if we could live like this. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be something if the physical circumstances of our life did not deter us from living the quality of life that God has called us to live? I, I want to live like that. I look at Jesus in this passage and He's, uh, he's having an off night. He's having an off week. Apparently his sermons weren't good enough. John the Baptist's own disciples, maybe he just came off a little weird or something. The Pharisees and the leaders of Israel are coming out and they're questioning him. and He's wore out. He's leaning up against this well. He tells his disciples to go into town. Hey, just go into town and get the food. And they come out and they see him sitting by this well and they're urging him in verse 28. They're urging him to eat food and he looks at them and says, I've got food to eat that you know nothing about. That I've got food to eat that you, you don't understand. That this thing isn't about me being healthy. This thing isn't about me being uh, emotionally stable. This thing isn't about me being, being uh, in perfect relationship with my wife, never arguing, seeing eye to eye. That'll never happen. I mean, it's, it's never a result of that kind of stuff. It's a result of me leaning on the resource of God Himself. Have you ever wondered why you see these preachers get in the pulpit and they preach and God moves and people get saved and then six months later they find out that they've been visiting every brothel in town and they've been having all these... Have you ever wondered, well, how do you explain that? It's not that guy that's being... It's not that guy in his own uh, abilities. It's the vessel of God that's changing people's life. And it's not that guy... It's God Himself. That's difficult to talk through. And there's issues there. Are you tired? I watch you after coming in and I can't blame you. I know that we don't have kids yet and, and I'm an evangelist so I don't work. And so, you know, it's... I watch you. I do. I watch you come in and your, your shoulders are stooped and you're, you're dragging yourself through the sanctuary and you try to put on a smile and 
you sit on one side and your wife sits on the other side of the congregation and, and you know, your kids are acting up and teen group sleeps. Some of them don't show up. Good ones show up. And you just, can I tell you it's okay? Can I tell you it's okay? Father, we love you this evening. I thank you for the truth of your word.